In the latter half of 2018, Grace Mullane was excitedly preparing for a gap year trip. She planned to travel to South America and then to New Zealand and onwards. In the midst of her planning, she took a break to do something else she loved, which was paint. She painted a beautiful watercolor. It was a picture of a skull with a rainbow of colors splattered behind it. She posted the painting to Instagram, and with it she posted the phrase, Two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Months later, Grace would be murdered overseas, and her painting was given new meaning, an ominous foretelling of her future. She met her killer through Tinder, and he would use what he described as consensual rough sex as his defense. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Kiora Kiwis. Today's case takes us to your beautiful country, New Zealand. Unfortunately, the case I'm covering today is gruesome, and there will be talk of sexual violence. That's a warning to anyone who might not be up for that kind of discussion today. Let's get started. Grace Mullane is British. In 2018, she had recently graduated from the University of Lincoln with a bachelor's degree in advertising and marketing. She was a third child and the only daughter of her loving parents, Jillian and David. As a teenager, she was considered outgoing and friendly. She loved music, was a talented hockey player, and dreamt of traveling the world. She'd take a big step towards her traveling plans right after graduation. The British have a fairly long-standing tradition of taking a gap year before or right after their secondary education. In fact, in 2022, 28% of British students took one. It's considered a rite of passage by hundreds and thousands of students in the UK, and one I wish Americans would embrace and encourage. Many young people choose to work abroad during their gap year, and most pay for their own travels with help from their families. Their hope while traveling is to gain new skills, find clarity about what their future educational goals should be, and to come home invigorated and ready to buckle down and study or get to work. Grace was no different. She chose to embark on a year-long solo trip, beginning in October of 2018. She started with a group tour in Lima, Peru, before she traveled toward the Patagonia region, where she stopped in Bolivia and then flew on to New Zealand. Her plan was to carry on to Australia, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand before heading back to the UK in June. This would be seven weeks before her oldest brother's wedding in August. That way, Grace would get to spend some quality time with her family before heading to North America to see other family members. She spent the first part of her trip traveling the Inca Trail in Peru. This trail snakes through the middle of the Andes mountain range and finishes at Machu Picchu. It typically takes five days to hike. This portion of the trip was due to her mother's influence. The two women had a strong bond, and since her mother had done the trail, Grace wanted to follow in her footsteps. She captured her travels and shared her memories on Instagram. She walked alongside llamas, shared the trail with various dogs, and enjoyed the outdoors with her fellow travelers. In each photo, she was beaming with happiness. On November 20th, she arrived in New Zealand. Like most visitors, she planned to leave the amazing country with only happy memories and tales of the beautiful scenery and friendly people. She traveled around the North Island, and by the 30th, she reached Auckland, where she settled into a hostel. The one she chose was a popular one. It was crowded with tourists like her, and there was a bar attached, which made it easy for her to meet new friends. Her first night there, she went to the bar and did just that. 
The people she met remembered her enjoying herself in the same, unhindered way thousands of young women do every year. She loved the vibe, the food, and the friendships, but she was also interested in a little romance. She was using the Tinder app to meet potential dates, and that's how she would meet her killer. The conversation began innocently, with him approaching her saying, Hey Grace, how are you? Much planned for the weekend? Her reply, Hey, I'm good, thanks. It's actually my birthday tomorrow, but I have no plans. He then said, Oh shit, happy birthday for tomorrow. Let's plan for this evening, then. At first, Grace seemed hesitant, but he was persistent. He suggested they meet at a Mexican bar and restaurant up near Sky City in central Auckland. It was near her hotel and had great cocktails. Grace wasn't a fan of Mexican food, but she was agreeable to cocktails. Their conversation ended at 3 a.m. on December 1st, when Grace finally agreed to the date and asked him to add her on Facebook. This was a smart move on her part, because this way she could check out his profile and make sure he was who he said he was. The next day, the couple met at 5.45 p.m. at Sky City, and they went to a burger restaurant. Grace would send a photo of the Sky City Christmas tree to her family. That would be the last message they would ever receive from her. The next day, her birthday, Grace's family reached out over and over with birthday wishes but got no replies. Her friends were doing the same thing. It wasn't like her to not respond or update her social media. She was normally one to bombard her loved ones with photos. Her family was concerned, but not overly so. Her birthday went by with no communication from Grace, and then another day, and then another. By December 5th, her family was in full-blown panic. Her father called New Zealand authorities to report her missing and booked a flight to help search for his daughter. His wife couldn't come with him because she was receiving cancer treatments at the time. I can't imagine her fear and anxiety and feelings of helplessness during that time period. When Grace's father, David, touched down in Auckland, he would quickly make an emotional plea to the public for any information on her whereabouts. Police at the time were very concerned about Grace. She hadn't been at the hostel she'd checked into for days. Her father fought back tears and struggled to speak while he described his daughter as lovely, outgoing, fun-loving, and family-oriented. He told the public that Grace had never been out of contact this long. Her practice was daily contact with her mother, her father, and her brothers. He begged for help, asking anyone who had seen her to come forward with anything, even if they thought it wasn't important. On December 5th, the day that Grace was reported missing, after confirming she hadn't holed up in the hostel, police began looking through Grace's social media. They were trying to figure out who she might have met up with in the area. They studied her Facebook page and noticed a recent comment from an Australian man named Jesse Kempton. He had commented on Grace's profile photo, saying she looked beautiful and radiant. This was the first time the police came in contact with her killer's name. Jesse was 27 years old. He was born in Wellington, New Zealand in December of 1991 and raised around the town of Porirua. Around the age of nine, his parents separated and he became estranged from his mother who moved overseas. He would try to contact her numerous times to connect, but that never worked out. The divorce made him anxious and depressed, but with counseling, he got through it. He was briefly placed in the care of his grandfather, but would eventually be raised by his father, who later remarried. In high school, he played softball, and upon graduation, he began working as a general laborer and bar attendant. 
At some point, Jesse had a falling out with his family, which led him to moving to Australia for a time. He often claimed to be Australian after the move. Police thought they should reach out to him, which they did through Facebook, asking him to get in contact with them as soon as possible. On December 6th, police released an image of Grace at Sky City from CCTV footage. In that photo, Grace is seen with a man, and that man was Jesse. He would come forward to police, admitting that he was the man on camera. Two detectives met him in a downtown food court on December 6th. At that time, Jesse claimed the last time he'd seen Grace was when they parted ways on Victoria Street on the night of the 1st, at about 10 p.m. Officers asked him for his name and address, but Jesse provided them with an old address. He made no mention of the City Life Hotel where he'd been staying. He would later, that day, explain that he misunderstood the detective's questions, but he'd already been caught in not one, but two lies. Jesse didn't know that the CCTV footage in downtown Auckland is amazing. Police were able to trace every move the couple made as the day progressed. In its entirety, the footage would begin with Jesse walking into a bar alone. He ordered two beers at 5.14 and another two beers, Heineken specifically, at 5.29 p.m. This gives you an idea of how great the camera footage was. He left the bar ten minutes later and walked towards Sky City. At around the same time, Grace is seen heading towards Sky City as well. She paused for a moment to take a picture of the large Christmas tree display, and she sent the photo to her family, and seconds later, the couple can be seen meeting for the first time. They greeted each other with an awkward hug in the rain and quickly made their way to a restaurant called Andy's Burger Bar. Grace was seen wearing a black dress and white shoes. She seemed fairly happy and relaxed in Jesse's company. They walked into the bar, and Grace grabbed the menu, passing it to Jesse. They found a quiet table where they ordered drinks and had a bite to eat. An hour and a half later, they left and made their way to a Mexican cafe across the street. They seemed more comfortable with each other by this time. They were joking, laughing, and smiling together. After an hour at the Mexican cafe, Jesse paid for their drinks, two jugs of margarita and one of sangria. They left around 8.30 and made their way to another bar called the Bluestone Room. They had more drinks, and eventually they would be seen kissing each other several times. At 9 p.m., Jesse kisses Grace once more before leaving to go to the bathroom. At this time, Grace uses her phone. She messages back a friend at home, telling her that she was on a date with a guy who was a manager of an oil company. Jesse wasn't a manager of anything, but he had a habit of lying his ass off. He'd meet these women knowing the date would likely be a one-and-done. He'd make up all kinds of stories to impress them and lure them to his bed. In a series of quick Facebook messages, Grace tells her friend that they'd had several cocktails, and her date said that since it was her birthday the next day, they would get smashed. After a few minutes, Grace is seen looking around the pub, seemingly in search of Jesse and anticipating his return. At 9.01, he returns with a shot of tequila for each of them. This was in addition to beer and cider they'd had there as well. Twenty minutes later, Grace leaves the table, likely to use the restroom. She left her purse there at the table, and Jessie took this opportunity to pick up her handbag and peek through it. After rummaging through her bag, he puts it in a different place than where she had left it, but Grace didn't notice when she returned. 
At 9.40, the couple took a short walk from the Bluestone Bar to the City Life Hotel where Jesse was living. He had his arm wrapped around her shoulders. She's smiling as she crosses the lobby and enters the elevator, riding it up to the third floor. She took a moment then to send a couple messages to her friend, sharing that her date lived in a hotel and that she'd clicked with him so well. She promised she'd share whatever happened the next day. But a message never came. The CCTV footage wouldn't catch Grace walking out of the hotel the next day. It would catch something much worse. When police confronted Jesse with the fact they had video footage of him walking with Grace to his hotel, he knew he'd been caught in a lie. Even at this early stage, the police had some other information. They knew he had bought a suitcase, but when he was asked about it, he proclaimed innocence. He said, if you're assuming I got that suitcase for something, I've still got that suitcase in my room, and you guys can have it if that's what you're assuming. Well, officers knew that Jesse was being thrifty with the truth, but they didn't have direct evidence that he had done anything to Grace. She'd been missing for over a week at this point. He'd remained fairly cool and collected through his first interview. He only let his mask slip at the very end when he asked in a panic, Am I being arrested for something I didn't do? The police knew they needed to build up some more evidence against him, and they arranged for a search warrant of the hotel room where he was staying. After forensic officers used luminol, they were stunned to find copious amounts of blood that had been spilled and then hastily cleaned. They were confident that something terrible had happened in that room, and that Jesse was involved. He was asked to do a second interview, and it was at this point that Jesse's story took a drastic turn. This time, he had a lawyer beside him, and he admitted that his date with Grace didn't end at Sky City. In fact, the pair had visited two other bars, and then they'd gone to his hotel room. Once inside, Grace started talking about the sexual fantasy film Fifty Shades of Grey. He claimed she also spoke of some sexual acts that she and a former partner had done. During the one-hour and 33-minute interview, he told police that Grace had asked him to turn the TV off which was the only source of light in the room. They started having sex, and at first it was just normal, ordinary sex, but then she asked him if they could get into bondage. He said he stopped at first and said, Is this something you really want to do? And Grace said they were in the moment and to just go with it. Jesse claimed he was new to all this S&M or BDSM stuff. He was used to having sex that was just sex and ordinary, and at first he was uncomfortable but he liked her and he was open to the idea. Somehow the pair ended up on the floor. This is where Grace allegedly showed him what to do, including putting his hand on her throat. Then he said at one point they stopped and took intimate photographs of each other with their phones. When asked why, Jesse replied, well, that's what all young people do. After continuing with progressively more violent sex in the pitch black of the room, he finished and then went to take a shower, where he fell asleep under the running water. Or passed out, however you want to say it. It was some time later that he crawled into bed in the dark, telling investigators he assumed Grace had left. But the following morning when he woke, he noticed her body was laying on the floor, and that there was blood coming from her nose. He screamed and yelled at her, trying to move her to see if she was awake, but she didn't respond. He told police he dialed 111, but decided not to pull the call through, because he knew his situation looked bad. Then he contemplated taking his own life. He was in shock and he didn't know what to do. 
He left the room in order to gather himself and come up with a plan. Eventually, he stuffed Grace's body into a suitcase and buried her out in the country. I have to say that I believe the police did a meticulous job with this case. They pulled his cell phone data, which showed that he had spent time in the Waitakere Range, and they were able to pinpoint his location and sent officers to take a look. There was an area that looked like it had been tampered with recently, so they sent one man into the bush, taking photos as he went. When he found an area that looked like it had been freshly dug, the man came back out to report what he had found. From that point forward, anyone entering the crime scene had to be dressed in appropriate forensic clothing. The dirt from around where Grace had been buried was carried out in buckets and sifted through. The buckets were removed one by one until searchers reached a suitcase which contained her decomposing body. It was carried unopened to a secure tent and placed on a clear, clean table where a forensic investigator cracked open the zipper. It was only opened long enough for the investigator to see that human remains were inside the case. At that point, the suitcase was transported safely to where a full autopsy and collection of evidence would be performed. Inside the green suitcase, Grace was found naked. Her body had been folded, with her head facing towards the wheels. She had died from strangulation. Her body had bruising on her chest and arms, and her blood alcohol level was twice the legal limit for drivers in New Zealand. While forensics testing was being completed on Grace, the police were tracking Jesse's movements on the day that would have been Grace's 22nd birthday. They were studying his phone further. What they found was gruesome and told a different story than the one Jesse had told police. At 1.29 a.m. on the morning of Grace's birthday, and presumably right after she died, he was using Google to search the Waitakere Range and the words hottest fire. At 1.41 a.m., he pulled up Pornhub and watched a few different porn videos. He paused during his porn watching and took seven intimate photos of Grace, then watched some more porn. Remember when he said the lights were out? That was his excuse for not knowing that Grace had died that night? Well, the intimate photos were in full light, and Grace didn't appear to be conscious. After this, there's a long gap in his internet use, which suggested he was sleeping. At 6 a.m., several searches on his phone were done, including rigor mortis, car hire, and extra-large bags. Later that morning, Jesse made a trip to the warehouse, which is a large department store, and purchased two large suitcases. He returned home and placed Grace in one of them. After this, he made several trips to various stores to pick up cleaning supplies. He even rented a rug doctor, which is a carpet cleaning machine. Nothing says, I'm covering something up, more than a hotel guest renting a carpet cleaning machine and lugging it to their room. He attempts to clean up the mess in his hotel room, but while doing so, he makes plans to meet another Tinder date later that night. He messaged her around 9 a.m., saying, Good morning, how are you? And then again at 10.30. He told her it was fine if she didn't feel like going out on a date, but she responded that she was happy to meet him. In the afternoon, he went to rent a car and returned to his hotel room. This is where he's captured on CCTV, moving the large suitcase containing Grace's body down to the rental car where he placed it in the trunk. He then goes on that date he arranged earlier in the morning. That date would later testify at trial. She said that she and Jesse had chatted for two weeks before they met up, and the conversation was light and fun. 
He said he was an Australian, so they talked about Australian things. According to her, he seemed like a nice, normal guy, and when they agreed to meet, she was happy to do so. But about five days before their date, he became very persistent. He would text her multiple times a day, and if she didn't reply, he would ask if something was wrong. He kept trying to bring the date forward, and would forget that she told him she was busy. She found it unusual that he was so persistent. It seemed as if he just couldn't possibly wait until Sunday, which was their planned date night. They went out to a bar called Revelry. When Jesse showed up, he was bigger than his photos showed. He had put on some weight, but he had big distinctive eyes and was clean. His clothes were tidy, and he was well-groomed. They made small talk, but after a while she began to feel uncomfortable. She'd caught him in a lie. He told her he worked one place in the text messages they had exchanged, but on the date he said something different. She didn't confront him, but she took a mental note. When she asked who his friends were, he told her that most of his friends were police officers and that his best friend was a crown prosecutor. Then he told her that local police had been having problems because bodies were being lost in the Waitakere Ranges. Then he went on to tell her that police dogs can only smell four feet deep, so if a body is buried deeper than that, the police won't find them. She thought this was strange that he would bring something like this up, but it was also kind of interesting. Then they got talking about poisonous snakes, and as their conversation meandered, he said, It's crazy how a guy can make one mistake and go to jail for the rest of his life. He proceeded to tell her about a guy he knew, who lived in Australia, who had consensual rough sex involving strangulation with his girlfriend, but ended up accidentally killing her. It was an accident. Things went wrong, and his friend was really upset because he loved his girlfriend, and he was now in jail for manslaughter. Jesse's date would later realize that he was trying out his defense story on her. After this conversation, Jesse probably noticed that his date was a bit uncomfortable, and he tried to talk about more mundane things. When it was time to go, Jesse told his date that his car was one way, and hers was in the same direction, but by that stage, she was feeling uneasy, and her instincts had kicked in. She told him that her car was the other way. Luckily, she went home safely that night. On December 3rd, Jesse drives the rental car to Scenic Drive in the Waitakere Range. He digs the hole and buries Grace. Then he drops clothes and linens off at a dry cleaner and took the rental car to be washed and cleaned before returning it. When was the last time you washed and cleaned a rental car? And if you've done that, is that because you're a murderer? The evidence was pretty overwhelming. It only took one week from the day of her death for the police to charge Jesse with murder. The trial would begin one month later. Jesse's defense team would use what some call the Fifty Shades of Grey defense, which allowed the perpetrators to claim that their victim wanted to be strangled and beaten. The pillars of Jesse's defense was that Grace enjoyed rough sex and that her death was an accident that came about as a result of consensual choking. As a consequence, the media coverage of the case was filled with details about Grace's personal life and alleged sexual preferences. All the while, Jesse's name was kept out of the news, as per New Zealand's rules that protect a person's identity until they are found guilty. Grace's name was publicly disgraced, while Jesse's name was protected. The public soon learned that Grace had recently joined some BDSM dating sites and had asked ex-partners to choke her during sex. 
Her ex-boyfriend said that they had a system where she would tap him or use a safe word when he wanted her to stop. She was somewhat experienced with choking, and because of this, it seems like she would have set some parameters with Jesse. But even if she didn't, it takes a really long time to strangle someone, and a lot of effort. According to the forensic pathologist, Grace's injuries were extremely uncommon. From his point of view, it was incredibly rare for someone to die from consensual choking during sex. He had never heard of another case in New Zealand. He told the court of more than a dozen bruises that were found on her body, with nine of them occurring around the time of her death. These were on her upper arms, left clavicle, and collarbone, and to the front and back of her left shoulder. The bruises on her upper arms and left shoulder were typical of restraint, and they ranged from one centimeter to five centimeters in diameter, or half an inch to two inches. He said he could conclusively state that she died from manual pressure applied to her neck for long enough and with enough force for that bruising to occur. There was extensive evidence of bruising to the left side of Grace's neck as well. The bruising couldn't occur with gentle pressure on the neck. It took extreme force. He then explained that it would typically take a person four to five minutes to die from the injuries Grace suffered, but it wouldn't have taken nearly that long for her to become unconscious. The forensic pathologist said he had dealt with death cases involving autoerotic asphyxiation, but none involving a partner engaged in a consensual sex game. He referenced a research paper from Poland that found only seven cases of death by sexual asphyxiation over nine years among a population of 38 million people. The defense brought in their own pathology expert who agreed with the prosecution's expert. Grace had been strangled to death. However, he said the injury was consistent with consensual sex because there were no defensive wounds to her body, such as abrasions as she struggled to remove the hands of her killer. His estimation was that pressure would have been applied to Grace's neck for between five and ten minutes before she died. The defense then suggested that alcohol could be a contributing factor in her death and that her respiratory system was compromised due to the high levels of intoxication. The prosecution's forensic pathologist disagreed, saying that if intoxication were enough to affect the respiratory system, then a person would be unconscious, which means they couldn't have given consent. This speaks to the major problem with the rough sex defense. The problem is this. It's dangerous to suggest that a victim of violent crime could have consented to it. This is an extreme form of victim blaming in which the killer is absolved of their responsibility and the blame is placed on the victim. The victim is usually a woman. She's supposed to ensure that she's not killed during the sexual act, but if the sex play gets to the point of unconsciousness, she can no longer defend herself. It's similar with drinking to unconsciousness. A woman can't consent to sex in any form if she's unconscious, no matter how she got that way. One of the worst examples of the rough sex defense being used is the case of Natalie Conley. Her killer, John Bradhurst, is a 41-year-old multimillionaire from the UK who was convicted of manslaughter by gross negligence after he killed his 26-year-old girlfriend, Natalie, during so-called rough sex. He walked free after serving only 22 months. It was determined that Natalie died in part because of Bradhurst's actions, but also from a combination of other factors, including intoxication. According to expert testimony, Natalie's blood alcohol levels were equivalent to having had five bottles of wine, 
and she had consumed a large quantity of cocaine. By contrast, John was significantly less drunk and was capable of making decisions and choices. He recalled his actions on the night in question, saying that, in response to her requests, he beat her on the buttocks with a boot and on her breasts with his hands. Then, because she allegedly suggested it, he inserted a bottle of carpet spray cleaner, the kind with the squeeze handle, into her vagina as a sexual stimulant. Because of its odd shape, it became lodged inside her and wouldn't come out. At this point, he inserted his hand and twisted the bottle around inside her, which caused lacerations to her vaginal wall. This resulted in arterial and venous hemorrhage. She began bleeding heavily. He admitted that he saw that, and that she'd hit her head and was bleeding from the nose, and had become gobbledygook. That's his words, not mine. That hit to the head was hard enough to break her orbital socket or the bones around her eyes. That kind of break takes extreme force. Even though he noticed all of that, he went upstairs to bed and left her lying there on her back to die in a pool of blood. He served less than two years for her murder because he said she consented to the rough sex and claimed she never changed her mind. But whether she really changed her mind, or Grace did, is a secret that will be kept because they're dead. The prosecution painted Jesse as a sexual deviant. He used dating apps to pursue young women for sex. The court would hear from three women who met him on Tinder. The first was a waitress who met him at the hotel on their first and only date. This was two weeks before Grace's death. She told the court that she and Jesse discussed their mutual interest in rough sex via messages. The pair had sex, which included choking, which was a preference of hers, and they shared pizza. This showed that he wasn't new to choking women. She left after he fell asleep. Another young woman exchanged intimate photographs with Jesse via text. They also spoke on the phone. Their conversations quickly turned to sex. But she got the creeps and didn't feel comfortable meeting with him and doing some of the things he wanted her to do. A third person did agree to meet him. She was a university student, and she and Jesse had talked for over three hours before they met up. He told her stories of being chased by gang members after tracking down his estranged father. Then he said he'd been in a fight with a man at a nightclub and that he knew a member of the All Blacks, most of which was lies. The conversation then became amorous. He began by telling her how much he loved her. Yes, they'd only just met. And then he told her how much he wanted to have sex with her. He began kissing her. The student told him that she didn't want to have sex with him. But he took her by the arm and led her to his bed, and they lay down together. He began touching her, and when she refused his touches, he became enraged. He climbed on top of her, holding down her arms. He covered her face with his body. She began kicking violently in an effort to show she couldn't breathe. The incident lasted approximately 30 seconds before she managed to turn her head slightly and catch a bit of a breath. She pretended that she went unconscious and hoped that he would get off her. But even then, it took a while before he moved. When he did, she gasped for air. He was surprised and then said almost accusingly, Oh, you don't think I did that on purpose, do you? She was terrified that she was going to die. Later, he went to use the restroom, and when he returned, he was clutching his stomach 
and claimed he had cancer. She thought he was trying to win sympathy. The prosecution would also report that in the days following Grace's death, he was searching to see if Grace had been reported missing by entering the terms breaking news into his web browser. There was also a search to find out whether flesh-eating birds lived in New Zealand. And then, more directly, whether vultures were part of the wildlife. He was obviously guilty, and the jury agreed. They sentenced him to a minimum of 17 years for murdering Grace. After he was found guilty, his name was released to the public. Shortly afterwards, he was charged with raping another British woman in early 2018 and faced eight further charges. This took place eight months before he met Grace. When the woman saw coverage from Grace's case, she went to police. Her case was suppressed so as not to prejudice the jury hearing Grace's case, but it would be prosecuted afterwards. In her statement to the court, she said she had woken up crying and screaming with flashbacks and nightmares, terrified that Jesse would track her down. Every time she went to sleep, she could see his eyes popping out of his head, staring at her in anger. His ex-girlfriend, who he'd lived with for months, also came forward. He had subjected her to violent assaults, threatened her with a butcher's knife while forcing her into sex acts. He was given 11 more years based on these offenses, which would be served at the same time as the sentence for Grace's murder. The trial was emotionally devastating for Grace's family. The world learned more about their daughter than the world should know. Her parents were forced to see pictures of their daughter in a state where no parent should ever have to see their child. That kind of stress takes a toll on someone's health. Grace's mother had been battling cancer and was winning, but it wasn't easy. Her father was diagnosed with cancer following the trial. He died in November of 2020. Grace's mother has spoken about her healing process since the murder. She needed to keep busy and poured herself into charity work. She started a charity called Love Grace, which supports victims of domestic violence. She raised money to fill handbags filled with essentials like shampoo and conditioner, things we'd take for granted. And then she donates them to local shelters. She was able to pack more than 12,000 bags. If that wasn't enough, she then set a goal to hike Mount Kilimanjaro in honor of Grace and her father. The hike normally takes between five and nine days. Jillian Mullane carried two stones engraved with Grace's and her husband David's names on them. When she reached the summit, she left those stones as a small memorial. She enjoyed every minute she carried them, almost feeling like Grace and David were traveling with her. Patreon listener Rochelle just told me that she will be hiking Mount Kilimanjaro in August of this year. Perhaps she will find their names and be able to pay tribute to them. The topic of her climb came up because I sent her a twisted travel and true crime iron-on patch. She intends to adhere it to her backpack and carry it along for the ride. Of course, I was so excited to hear this because I want to live vicariously through all your twisted travels. I asked Rochelle if she'd take pictures and share them. She agreed, and I can't wait to see them. If you'd like to see the patch, take a look on Facebook or Instagram. There are links in the show description for those. And there are links in the show description for uh, supporting the podcast. Speaking of supporting the podcast, if you want a patch of your own, you can get one by becoming a Patreon at the $7.50 person of interest tier. They're pretty awesome, if I do say so myself. 
Thank you all so very much for listening, and as always, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.